Welcome back in for another edition of Head Coach You. I am Brian Fisher with D1 Ticker. Thrilled to be joined once again by Bronco Mendenhall. Bronco, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How about you, Brian? Oh, I, I can't complain. It was a wild weekend in, in college football and, and the NFL. I mean, we, we both uh, we, we got both uh, leagues going back again nowadays. And uh, I, I mean, missed kicks, overtime. I, I I would imagine it was much calmer at, at the Mendenhall household or, or the Mendenhall ranch uh, than, it, than it was uh, kind of out in, in general uh, for fans watching college football. Yeah, uh, I have to confess it was. And besides horses galloping and cows grazing and dogs barking, that was about as wild as it got uh, at the ranch this weekend. So quite a contrast. Yeah, no, no missed kicks there. Uh, you know, you guys were, uh, were 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 much calmer than than I think a lot of your head coaching peers. Uh, mm. On just uh, really, really, truly, truly wild, uh, crazy weekend. But uh, appreciate everybody joining us back here for another edition of Head Coach You. We are presented by Collegiate Sports Connect. Thrilled to welcome you into a, a really a fascinating conversation we got for you today. And I, I say that because I was actually out out of uh, your your old neck of the woods, I guess you could say, uh, two stops ago at, at BYU for that oh. Baylor game. Uh, first uh, first win uh, there over a top ten opponent uh, since nineteen. 1990. I, I, I will maybe put you to the test here and see if you can remember anything, if you knew who that might be over that, that 1990 game when, when BOIU upset a top 10 opponent. Uh, it, um, it, you know, the history isn't my specialty, even though I should know that. I don't know it. Well, you'll you'll have to learn uh, some at, at 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 the next stop uh, for for sure. But uh, it was it was over Miami, but a uh, big win for for the program. I, I, and, almost, I almost said Miami. I mean, I almost said it, and then I wasn't sure on the date. So yeah, there there's a great lesson there. I hesitated. There you, there you go. But, uh, you know, it, it was a big win that they played on Sunday. I, I don't know if I mean, I would imagine uh, when you were there at BYU, you played some some late games. Did you ever go past past midnight there in, in Provo? Gosh, not not that I remember. Some of the games felt like they went past Sunday. But now with uh, television and how uh, prolific that is, those 815 or nine o'clock start times, that's a whole different era. And it seems like content kind of trumps sometimes the the student athlete well-being especially when you consider travel as well but at BYU it's probably a first and I'm sure the ecclesiastical endorsements will remain in place <laughs> with the top 10 opponent win at least for this once yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people following in a little bit late uh, to, to church there on, on Sunday after uh, attending that game. But uh, yeah, wild day. For sure. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I've seen what church looks like after a big win and the other. And so it's, it's way better after a big win. I, I would imagine. I mean, that they, they stormed the field there uh, in, in Provo after a big win, being not only a top ten opponent but future Big Twelve member. I, I would imagine they they got a few of those late kicks uh, against uh, big time Big Twelve opponents uh, coming in the, in their future uh, as they join the conference next year. But I I, I do want to kind of get into it just a little bit with you in terms of uh, how you did kind of find out and, and, and interview and, and take over at BYU. It, it was an interesting process. Obviously, you were their defensive coordinator there initially, but but what was it like kind of taking over as as a head coach for the first time there? The story is is pretty unique. I was at the University of New Mexico with really no intent to leave, and we were building a program there, three wins to four wins to five wins to six wins to seven wins, and the Brian Erlacher influence early on, and then how that kind of helped shape the culture. And I was working with Rocky Long and serving as his assistant head coach, and we were playing great defense, and just Holly and I really liked Albuquerque. And a really good friend of mine, uh, Gary Croton, was the coach at BYU, and he reached out. Um, and there had been some struggles in terms of not only wins, but um, some of the defense what, that was being played or yards giving up or, or et cetera. And so I went to, to work for a really good friend. That was the motive, simply to help uh, him and do anything I could, but also to elevate a program. After a number of years, 
there were losing seasons um, and it did not work uh, effectively and Coach Croton was released, I was then given a chance to interview pretty rapidly off the heels of one of my really good friends being released. And it was not my best interview. Uh, I was loyal and defending and quite frankly, confrontational as to how things went down and Brigham Young at that point, um, I wasn't the only candidate for sure. And the job was offered um, to someone else, at least one, maybe two. I learned of the job being offered elsewhere on the radio uh, as I was driving uh, home one day and Holly uh, called and said, well, it doesn't look like we're getting the job. And I, I, had, I was parked at a four-way stop and I remember saying, we're going to be the head coach at BYU. And that in and of itself ended up playing out. And I had no facts or data to, to back that up on, just a feeling or a prompting that this is going to happen with really no desire or intent to ever wanted to be to want to be a head coach. And it didn't take long before pretty overwhelmed and realizing I'm the head coach at Brigham Young University. And quite frankly, uh, there was a pause there between the interviews and and uh, me being named where the job was extended um, and to others and the defensive players at BYU after a amount of time went by, they went to the administration and basically requested that I be given a chance. And so I think I really got the job by default. There's unique circumstances at BYU regarding faith uh, and the number of uh, qualified candidates are probably fairly slim in any given year. So I was given a chance. I think I was given a chance kind of to be a placeholder until they could find a real coach. And it just so happens that we were both eligible our first year. And then we went 11 and two, 11 and two, 10 and three, 11 and two ish, some somewhere in there. <laughs> I think it was just a surprise to all of us. And that's really how it went. Uh, so from a surprise interview to defending of a head coach to a feeling and a prompting and then to fruition with players kind of speaking on my behalf. That's, that's how it started anyway. I, I, I want to rewind just, just a little bit in terms of that kind of interim period when, when you, you, you learn that, that Gary got let go and, and we, we just had our, our first head coach firing uh, of this upcoming cycle, Scott Frost being let go at, at Nebraska. What, what is that time like both as a head coach uh, for, for your family uh, who, who understand maybe you are out of a job, maybe, uh, you know, kind of un, a cloudy future going forward. What's it like, you know, talking with your players during that kind of interim period where the school's got to figure out what to do in terms of hiring somebody new, but also kind of ha- keeping the program together a little bit there's uncertainty there's unease and there's a a lack of trust i would say or a trust that's been violated um when you're working so hard to build an organization and a program and then the leader is gone kind of sub uh sub subunits are being formed as to position groups are holding on to their position coach right maybe the offensive side defensive side they're holding together sometimes it's more elaborate and extensive than that but uncertainty for sure. It really forces perspective. It forces self-reliance. Sometimes it forces isolation, which is not ideal in a team sport, kind of like self-preservation. The uncertainty though, when really examined is only prevalent with a lack of self-confidence maybe, and certainty that an individual is capable, competent, and will be able to Uh, land on their feet and move forward. So after the initial shock, there's almost a building up of resolve and quite frankly, a candid assessment of 
this really changes nothing other than uh, the organizational structure, the leadership. But what I'm capable of, I'm still capable of. It will be under different circumstances. So somewhere you end up circling through that whole cycle and coming out with resolve, determination, and maybe even more passion uh, to demonstrate that you're capable, uh, that a unit's capable, that a team's capable than what they were maybe before they went through the adversity. You mentioned being a, a little confrontational in, in your interview. Did you did you kind of have a, a plan going in, yeah, assuming you you were going to get the head coaching job? And you know, here here's what I'm going to do. Here here's how I'm going to put my stamp on on this program right away. Well, I was the defensive coordinator, and at that time, the effort we were playing with, and I, I like to call it fanatical effort, was was the expectation. We were working so so hard, and I really wanted our program to have success at BYU and and to help Coach Croton. That in and of itself was going to be, quite frankly, the identity of the entire program. And I wasn't the offensive player's first choice because of what they'd seen and the expectations and and maybe the methodologies of what that looked like. But that was going to be my intent anyway. The expectations at BYU are extremely high. They should be extremely high. And there's so much at stake in representing an institution and a faith and being an ambassador for both. I didn't see any any other way than to, to ask everything uh, that young people could give with a framework that really would give them their best opportunity. And so, for example, we, we, we did something that was called an eco challenge at that time. It later was called the Cougar challenge and it was optional, uh, highly encouraged, but optional. And so the players were asked to swim a mile, then they'd run up to the Y and back, then they'd go to the stadium, do every stadium step. And there's three peaks up Provo Canyon. They'd have mountain bikes. That was 40 miles of that. And then when they finished at Sundance, they would then run to the top and get to Arrowhead Summit. And that was where the finish was. And so the fastest would be done in five hours. The, The latest would finish around 12 hours, all in the same day with the commitment being, if you start, you finish. My simple framework to them was, this is what the program is going to look like. These are what the expectations are going to, uh, these are going to be expected. It's just going to now be on the practice field, but these kind of tests of will are going to be essential to transforming the program. And so the, the, the players kind of saw that from the defensive perspective to begin with, realized, wait, that's coming to the entire team. And so there was apprehension, certainly, but I certainly believed it was going to start with really fierce expectations and commitment. And then with love surrounding that on both sides at a really high level. You're a defensive guy. You you, you worked under Rocky Long, another defensive guy. You, then you go with with Coach Croton, who uh, you know highly regarded as, as an offensive mind. How how do you go about not only hiring kind of offensive staff, but but making sure that you kind of do convey that that fanatical effort on the offensive side of the ball when everybody does understand that you are kind of you have, have that defensive background. The expectations and clarity for the expectations are are paramount and being able to articulate that. And I was taught one time by Paul Gustafson that expectations or frustration occurs when expectations are implicit, not explicit. So you expect people to know, but then you realize you never told them. So the more clear the expectations, I had a really unique idea regarding succession planning. And there, there are others that might do this still. At the end of each season, I would look at my team and I would say, who on this current team would be an outstanding coach. Then I would approach them, give them an opportunity to be a graduate assistant. They'd have to work through personnel for a year. If that went well, then they became a graduate assistant. If that, that, if that went well, I had to be able to see them 
as replacing or being able to step in for a full-time coach who might um, find another job, might decide coaching is, his coaching career is done. But that way they're really every single day I was investing in the future of the program and anyone that I hired in the 14 families that I took to, to Virginia, they'd all been players slash graduate assistants slash full-time coaches there. So the methodologies was already in place. So back to your original point of how did I share that messaging really, really clearly and bluntly to begin with, with expectations being paramount style of play and complimentary football following soon after that. And then quite frankly, how the players are treated right on the heels of that. And then daily feedback, daily feedback, daily feedback from the initial inception. And so familiarity really helped in terms of who I was going to work with so many times today in the world of college football, statistics and outcomes, right? Demonstrated results are what brings a staff together. Search firms, et cetera, are then helping head coaches and ADs put staffs together. Sometimes there's history and sometimes there's not. And when there's not history, there has to be enough time on an interview process, one, two, three, four, five days, et cetera, however long it takes to truly be sure that those personalities are going to match, the philosophies are going to match, and you can find out soon enough. And most of the time, that's in a really tight time frame. Recruiting's already going, and you're right in the middle of a race uh, for personnel. But if you don't pause to get that part right, and the back end is really costly. So alignment, expectations, the right processes, the right complementary nature within the overarching principles. But man, history together really helps. The downside of all that history together is there could be blind spots for kind of groupthink and only thinking this one way. And so you have to foster diversity and safety of expert, um, expression along the way. Otherwise, uh, mediocrity can result just because you have too much of the same idea. I mean, BYU is such a, such an interesting case. You, you had a lot of BYU alums on, on your staff. You, you're not one, but, uh, you know, I, I would imagine just being such a, a unique university uh, and, and having to deal with, with the church in, in, a, in a unique way that really is, is not really present at, at a lot of other uh, FBS football programs. I, I would imagine that that helps to kind of have uh, a lot of alums that, that went through the, the program and, and understand those expectations that maybe played for, for Coach Edwards. I mean, uh, how, how big of a help was that, especially early in your tenure, uh, to have people that just kind of knew the place and, and really knew how to sell it to recruit? as well well the, the the simple philosophy is fit first and i don't think it's happening at a lot of places around the country the fit is really being considered just on the field but it's not really being considered how does this player fit in this community like what value will they add if they weren't a football player is this where they would choose to settle if football wasn't part of this um those kind of things to me are are paramount. So this foot fit first approach and at Brigham Young University with the unique standards, right? 98.5% of all the students there are members of one faith. There's very unique uh, challenges, but also standards to live by in the honor code and no alcohol and no tobacco and no premarital sex and hair above the ear and off the collar and dress and grooming. And at one point, 85% of my team were returned missionaries. All those things to me were amazing strengths because it fits specifically and was aligned exactly with an institution that represented that. I wanted coaches that could present and were aligned the same. So I think each institution can compete on differentiation if they really work to align and say, what are we truly capable of? What makes us different? And then trying to find the coaches and people that will then represent and fit within that, knowing along the way, self-selection is at every turn. If this isn't for you, 
then there's plenty of other places, another 130 division one programs, find one of those. Ideally though, that's all on the front end. And unfortunately in the selection and assessment process and recruiting right now, there isn't many opportunities that are truly being given for self-selection, meaning this is what we're like, kind of take it or leave it. It's more of endorsements and uh, entitlements and, and options to attend without really the day-to-day is gonna look exactly like this. That in and of itself, I think has to be at the, the foundational level of whomever you choose, coaches or players, if you want alignment. And that has to be present to me for the well-being of an institution and a community. If it's not, the institution can suffer through conduct, but so can the community through misalignment. And there's way more at stake here than football, even though this time of year and double overtimes and rushing the fields and all that, it seems like that's everything. But we know 365 days a year, there's way more to it than football. And those communities and those institutions really should be benefiting by the type of people that are being drawn to play football. And I think that on the coaching staff as well, right, that has to be, I think, considered at maybe a broader and deeper level than it is now. When you first took over, did you feel like you were ready to be a head coach? <laughs> Not even close. I remember sitting in my office and luckily Lavelle Edwards knocked on the door first thing that morning and came in and he just looked at me and he kind of shook his head and he said, man, you got a tough job. <laughs> and that, that didn't make me feel any better. And he paused and kind of like the grandfatherly way. And then he goes, but you have a great job. I didn't know what he meant by either at that time. And then I realized issues started coming through the door that I'd never dealt with before. And it was this constant state of readiness of what's next. And my, I was writing scraps of paper of, okay, how do I deal with this? And getting on the phone, trying to find this expert and getting this book checked out to, to find and become a master on this topic. And the number of things that were coming from all different sides before we even practiced or played was mind boggling. And so the, the learning curve was straight up, but so rewarding. And the first year was just survival. We make it back to postseason, lose the cow in a two minute drive but so fulfilling and exhausting at the same time, just for how much I was learning and I love to learn and hopefully the team was as well, but so many mistakes I made over and over and I could see them as soon as I made it, I'd do my best to try to rectify that one and then I'd make a mistake in another area and I'd try to fix that one. (laughs) And so it was just a moving target. However, that's part of a growth mindset. You, You always believe you can do better, you will do better and you just keep going. And hopefully you can express your intent to those in your organization that you're trying the best you can for everyone's benefit to help not to uh, be served, but to be serving, right, as a servant leader. And those kind of things are what builds trust over time and they build results over time. But the the number of uh, areas where I was not competent to start or didn't even know it was part of the head coach's responsibility, it, it was such a challenge. But also I'm so thankful that I was able to do that because of the growth that occurred. So no, I wasn't ready. And even after 17 years straight of being a head coach, the number of things on a yearly basis that would come across my plate that were new, that number certainly diminished, but they always, there always was something new, which was also rewarding and challenging at the same time. We joked a, a little bit on, on the first episode about, you know, kind of dealing with, with the media. Was there ever, ever a moment when you kind of had to, to pinch yourself and you're like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm actually the, the head coach now. And, and like, I got, I got to go in front of the media and, and explain things after a loss. I, I, I got to deal with these players and, and some of those surprises that are, are thrown your way. 
The very first home game I coached at BYU, we played Boston College, and I chose to punt on a fourth down rather than go for it. We were trailing, and time was running out, and the home the home crowd booed, and I was like, "Whoa, whoa, what?" And and I remember that feeling. Fifty five thousand maybe were there. I I don't know, but I remember that feeling, and it's like, "Oh, this is what it's be to be like a head coach." And then the press is after, and. I remember trying to get my thoughts together and framing what what am I going to say and how am I going to say it to reflect positively on the program, but also admitting clearly things that I could do better to build confidence, momentum for the team and the program, but also candidly and openly claim the mistakes that were made and be responsible. In today's world, it seems like, and, and I don't know if you feel the same way, Brian, but there's the game. And that's reported on and that's covered and there's analysts and commentary and all that. And then there's the comments after the game that is a whole other game. And those are reported on, right? The comments are reported on and the commentary is on the commentary and then the rebuttals to the commentary. And that kind of takes its own thing. So the entertainment component of college football and for the world of head coach, you're on 24 seven and you can't ever assume anything's off the record. My wife so many times, if we were out in public and someone might have said something, she'd grab my my shirt tail just in case I had a weak moment and wanted to say or do. And so many emails or text messages will come now after a game, anonymous numbers, and the content of what they say, uh, not only in the media, the the ability to manage crisis, ha- keep your drama threshold at a really high level and represent your program and your players and your institution at the highest level of human dignity for everyone's sake is at a premium. And I think it go it's going a lot uh, uh, pretty fast the other way. And the speed in which social media responds after a game kind of facilitates that where now there's this additional component after the game that a head coach back to your point with the head coach and the media really has to master and be cautious. And the very best advice I could give is to make it unnewsworthy really. And so there are masters at really saying nothing in the driest manner possible. (laughs) And they're, they're really pretty skilled at trying to then keep the focus on the performance on the things that mattered and not add other things that will be a distraction through the upcoming week, even though the craving is to say and do and react in a way that will get more viewership. And so there's traps that are laid and for the minute you're off the field, sometimes with a microphone, even before you've left into your locker room and those things, it's a work in progress to be learned. And uh, I think we can see that playing out week in and week out just by a comment that's made that seems to just live forever and you forget the game, but you remember a comment. Well, I, what, what about inside the, the building there? How, how do you kind of prevent that from kind of creeping into to your players? I mean, it is it is so difficult nowadays with social media? That was not something necessarily that uh, was ever present when you first took over as, as a head coach, but certainly those last couple of years in Virginia, you know, I mean, there's, there's players are, are always on their phone. They're always inundated uh, by social media. How, how do you kind of prevent those messages from really creeping into, into the building and, and affecting performance? You know, one of the, my favorite things to do after a touchdown uh, from an offensive player on our in our program, so many times now you see a player separate himself from his team and and what he'll do to to celebrate and it's fun and he he's worked so hard to celebrate and it's it's great, but many times it's outward facing. I much prefer an inward facing 
and flip around and find your team and race back to them as they're racing to you, race back to them to celebrate with those players and those people that are responsible for helping you get there. What happens now, and I think the the generation that we're working with, and maybe the older generation as well, we're measuring ourselves with attention capital, which rather than what we truly think of ourselves, we're looking online for the amount of likes as to what people really think. And I remember coming in at a halftime one time at Virginia and seeing a players on phones at halftime. And I was like, what, what is this? And, and they were really looking to see what others thought of how they played. And we still have a half to play. And that pervasive nature, there's a great book called Irresistible, talking about the power of, of the cell phone and as one of the most addictive devices ever known to man. And so I, I saw that play out and I go, I was thinking and addressing it really almost every morning in team meeting, where does trust come from? And your sense of self, who is defining that? And be really careful who you give that up to. So someone, I think, has a strong self-concept. They really don't need to be validated at at a really high level by others as frequently as those that their self-concept might be struggling. And so the idea is, can we build amazing young people through football that understand their self-worth, understand their divine potential, know who they are, where they came from, and where they're going, and what they're going to do? what they're capable of, and they don't really need to hear that from someone else that they don't know. And hopefully they're surrounded by an organization that is real with them. Ruffin McNeil was on our staff. He used to say, real recognizes real. We only wanted to tell them the truth. And so in our organization, they could know from true and blunt feedback where they were, how they were doing, and hopefully that would diminish the craving for looking outside of that from strangers who really have no vested interest other than sharing an opinion and their state of mind when they shared it usually wasn't a a very stable place. And so we were trying to build confidence, self-concept through simple successes, through love and extreme expectations all at the same time so they could stand resilient and smile at adversity when they come without having to look elsewhere for what their self-concept was going to be. And that same thing with administration, the communication with expectations made it so clear rather than, right, athletic directors are being um, are dealing with the, the boosters and the special interests all the time, right? And money is at stake with that. And a key booster could say, you won't get another dollar if that guy remains our head coach. And the athletic director is right in the middle of that. Communication between the athletic director and head coach scanning the external environment, being aware of it. But then quite frankly, the head coach has no time to worry about the external environment. In fact, there's, there was a great, a great article um, written. And this is, this came from Jim Collins and he was talking about this, this, this concept we're having. And it was saying, you know, what do the great companies do in relation to these the external influences? The research shows that great companies react much less to outside circumstances than the average ones. It goes on to say, for a great leader, the only legitimate form of discipline is self-discipline, having the inner will to do whatever it takes to create a great outcome, no matter how difficult. Leaders don't go against the flow or go against the grain, nor do they go with it. They stay true to their mission, no matter what anyone else is doing. So they're aware, but then they're choosing to their mission, so disciplined within it. And if the athletic director, president, and coach are aligned in their mission, regardless of what the other influences are, if those three remain disciplined, 
to carry out the mission that's aligned with the institution. That's back to the point of it can be football in a university setting, or it can be football that represents that institution and its values, right? Which comes from president to AD to coach. When you can get that alignment, then the fierce discipline and open communication amongst that group of three allows you to embed in the processes that will deliver not only the right outcome, but the right people uh, and, and their development. And that to me is critical. So the alignment, which comes from the pur- purpose, the guiding principles that come off of that, the processes that do it, those three people with the communication to tie all that together gives you your best chance. And then you're working with colleagues and those united in a purpose rather than maybe conflicted because of position. And I found the best success aligning, uniting in purpose, guiding principles, the processes, and we're all doing the same job. I just happen to be doing it through football, right? The president's doing it through guiding an entire institution. And when you have that kind of alignment, really so many problems are headed off before they even get started. And that transfers to the players. Yeah, I, I don't know any any head coach that does not speak towards you know making sure that they are aligned, whether they're they're taking a job, whether they're currently in a, in a job. You know, it, it's all about that shared vision. And I'm I'm curious how you you kind of work with your ads. I mean, you worked for for two of the most respected in the industry at both your head coaching stops. And and how, how was it just to, you know making sure that uh, they understood? Hey, we we need some extra training table meals. You know, we we need an, another trainer, perhaps. You know, I, I mean, how did you kind of convey uh, some of the things that your program needed, and, and also understand that they're they're under their, the same kind of pressure when they are dealing with boosters, when they are dealing with with massive budgets? The vision of the program so frequently is set by the primary revenue-generating sport. And football itself, I'm not saying is more valuable or less valuable for any student-athlete experience than any sport that exists on the university. The, The reality is the financial part makes the scope and scale at such a different level. When you have athletic directors that are servant leaders that are player or student athlete first in their approach, there aren't many times where we have to go and say our training table quality or our grass practice field isn't up to par or our cleaning crew just isn't doing a great job in the locker room. The really skilled leaders at the athletic director position who are student athlete centered and focused and principle driven as well. So many times they're ahead of it, even before you go to them and say, you know, I don't know if you've seen this, but they go already on it, made a call and it just keeps happening on a rare occasion, right? There might be a blind spot here or there, but, but when in the, in the hiring process from president to AD, AD to coach, when you align under the right principles and those things are common, a conversation if I came to you and you were the athletic director and our grass practice field, yeah, I saw it this morning. I walked it and yeah, we're on it. That was my response more often than not. And when you have athletic directors and leaders like that, the confidence that that generates that not only are they on it, but they really are intentional about doing something about it as fast as possible, just builds so much confidence. The same would hold true for players coming to a coach. Yeah, I saw that this morning. We're on that. And they would just, you could just see the weight come off of them. I go, okay, good. Because there was all this anxiety build up before they come to talk to a a supervisor. But man, when you could answer that quickly, yep, I saw it, we're on it. And they they just like their countenance, they would smile and leave just feeling so much better. I've experienced that as a head coach. So if you don't have athletic directors and, and there are blind spots for anyone that maybe aren't as player, student athlete focused, 
then the responsibility to be an advocate for your program becomes more of what re- uh, the relationship might look like. And over time, those expectations possibly can come together in a different way without the right communication. And so much of that right is not just the words, but the tone and the body language and your intent. And if you truly believe you're on the same team, then how in the world should it end up confrontational? And really, there aren't many of those times it needs to be if you're with the right people and you express yourself correctly. So those are just kind of my experiences where I've been lucky to work with really skilled people that were uh, motivated by, I think, a pure intent. How much did it, did it help you working specifically for, for the 80s that, that you did? I mean, Tom Homo, uh, you know, very successful player, went, went to the NFL for, for several years, coached at, at BYU. Carla, Carla Williams was, was a coach herself before getting into administration, a, a terrific player in her, in her own right. Having those background uh, that your AD, 80s had, how beneficial was that for you as, as a head coach? Really beneficial, especially in tough moments. There might be a player discipline issue that you're having to wrestle with. There might be a tough loss you've just encountered. There might be a player that really is struggling to meet the standards of either the program or the institution. And rather than jumping to conclusions because they'd been in the shoes of a coach, they already had grasped all the interrelated pieces that were working against each other there and the friction points. And so many times they would come to console, allow you to vent, to talk through it. And then after all that, you would kind of come through and, and find a solution through a collaborative way at the end of all that. But rarely was there this lack of understanding of how could this happen? They know how it could have happened because they've been in the shoes where it did happen. And they also know what it looks like maybe from the outside that's always more complicated. And what I originally thought was, was gonna be black and white only issues, um, meaning so clear, either black or white. I'm not sure I ever made a decision that didn't have some shade of gray. Right. It might have been more gray or less gray, but the amount of interrelated pieces. So having athletic directors that had been coaches, it, add, it added a grounding effect and an anchoring effect that really the benefit of the doubt was given to start with as the process was going, simply because they understood all the other elements that were going into it in most cases. And what a sense of calm that would provide because there's enough pressure already on the head coach. There's enough already going on with 125 players and the choices they're going to make and the age they are, let alone your staff and support staff, et cetera, and the pressure to win. So having someone that had at least been in the shoes, maybe not the exact cir- circumstances, that point of reference was essential. But I think it is, even though you and I don't know each other well, there are points of reference that if we look for them deeply enough, we'll find them. And starting from there is a great way to handle a relationship. I mean, that relationship with an AD, when when you're, perhaps when you were uh, leaving BYU and and looking at other programs to to take your next job, how did you kind of go in in that evaluation process? Were were you looking at facilities? Were you looking at recruiting? Or or was it all about making sure that that alignment was was paramount? In in particular, in leaving BYU to, to go to Virginia, I was looking for an amazing challenge, the harder, the better. And I, I was hopeful for a program that needed to be rebuilt. I was hopeful for a program that was going to p- compete at the highest level that really cared about something other than football. Those were the three criteria. Virginia checked all of those boxes. Here's the reality. All of this sounds really good in terms of what I was looking for. I was clear on the criteria, the amount of time you have to vet an athletic director and a place 
it's about a 48 hour window, meaning from the time that you're contacted either by the AD or the search firm to go meet at some location where no one knows where it is. And you feel like a CIA operative, right? And you, you go through the interview process, literally when that's done, they want to know, do you want the job or not? That will be before you've even seen in person the facilities, before you visited the campus, before so many times the time frame with this amazing process that will guarantee the best outcome is superseded and jammed down into this pressure-filled 48-hour window to then make a decision. And I think, quite frankly, Brian, that's why there is so much volatility in which coaches make it and which don't. And you compare that to some of the best processes. And I'll give you just a, a quick idea. There's a selection process from an organization I studied, and, and this is what they said. So this is going to your question, which I would have loved to do if it wouldn't have been offsite in a CIA operative pressure field sign. And you don't even know what this place looks like yet. So it says this, we'll make hiring decisions based on our developed criteria. We won't compromise the selection criteria. Self-selection at each step, meaning there's multiple steps, will be along the way. The best predictor for future behavior is past. If there's no past experience, replicate it or create it. We'll attempt to have all critical competencies demonstrated. The selection method, once your all participates, demonstrate the competencies. I mean, you need to have time. The selection process is the cornerstone to the best people. It just keeps going on. There's like 15 steps. <laughs> so, so good luck in in the time that you have to go through that entire thing for this pivotal decision what it really comes down to though is what what i wanted and what they wanted is superior results right with distinctive impact and then an endurance that lasts forever in terms of confidence and trust in the job you did so if you want those things and both sides know that that can steer the conversation to what are you currently doing to demonstrate you're in alignment with those things? And I could ask that to the search firm or the AD and they could ask that back to me and you better have clear answers. And it doesn't take long before you're self-selecting and saying, wait, this isn't matching. This is football only at this school. The student athlete well-being, maybe not. Academic rigor, uh, I'm not seeing that. Social engagement and community, uh, I don't think so. And so it doesn't take long if you're just paying attention, right? And asking the right questions. You can self-select in and out. Fortunately, in that condensed time frame, if you know what you're looking for, these are my beliefs, this is my purpose. These are the guiding principles. So if I, if I were just to tell you, right, that I think every decision is governed by a guiding principle and every guiding principle is governed by a belief. So if you're listening to the ADs and, and those you're talking to, you're hearing, wait, where are they, where are they operating from? In their decision-making process, what's the most important thing? So if their if their personal purpose isn't driving their guiding principles and their decisions aren't aligned with that, how are you going to work with that person? Because where do you where's the anchor for knowing their construct to make sure you're in alignment? And if that doesn't align, wow, talk about friction and uncertainty on a daily basis. But what if you and I were were talking and interviewing and you would state, this is my purpose. These are the principles I operate under, right? These are the processes that, and this is what I expect. And I would say, wow, that, so here's mine and they match all of a sudden the chance for fulfillment and certainty. You're not worried too much about what someone else is thinking because you've already shared that and you're aligned. And so in a small amount of time, you have to discover that and uncover that as fast as possible. Otherwise there's going to be frustration and probably a, a sad ending. 
And at some point, right, that's going to lead to resources. So here's here's what you're saying. Now, what is demonstrated and what's the future? What does the future look like if we win an Orange Bowl? If we win the Coastal Division, if you go from two and ten to then a bowl game and then eight wins and then nine wins. OK, then what is the reciprocal part that comes to that that will give these kids their best chance to keep going as a program? And so sometimes you have to forecast a little bit as to where you currently are as a program and most programs when they're hiring they're struggling but then you have to predict okay now when we're not struggling what will that then look like and that those without that conversation you're probably a little bit short of of having this uh, solace and peace that you'll need well, we're bumming up a, a little bit against time, but as, as they like to say in the business, that that's a great tease for the next episode where we can explore that a little bit more. But uh, we, we appreciate uh, everybody following along, not only subscribing to, to Head Coach You and, and, and learning more uh, about your journey as a head coach and, and your philosophies around the head coach and, and your approach to college football. But um, you know, we, we had a lot of uh, great comments, that, uh, people that, that gave us five stars. You know, We really appreciate that. That's a, another way to kind of get get the word out about this podcast. If you're not already subscribed or, you, or you're hearing this on, on YouTube or whatever, go ahead and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, uh, please go ahead and, and subscribe. We, we got some more episodes uh, certainly coming your way. And I, I, I can't wait to explore some of those other topics uh, with you further, Bronco, as really college football, it, it, it's not only here, but but the chaos is here. Uh, and, and hopefully we can kind of cut through a little bit of that and, and get to what uh, what coaches are dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah, I think the same thing, Brian. And I, I've received so many great comments. Our intent on, on the show is to provide, provide value and add value for not only individuals that are wrestling with hard things, uh, administrators, coaches, moms, dads, youth coaches, anyone really that is facing, are facing challenges. They're just seeing it right now from the lenses of college athletics and college football, but adding value of, of just really how to overcome is what we're hopeful to do. The first two episodes have really been kind of personnel and history related in terms of my background, but I, I see it just like you do moving toward kind of core issues regarding the game moving forward and, and what that's going to look like as the landscape is changing uh, in a really unique way. And I think there's plenty of opportunity to talk about that, but life changes in a really unique way sometimes. And we're all, we're all uh, working through some charted and uncharted waters, but I think the principles and beliefs and the people you surround yourself with give you a great chance, especially when you can tune into things that will add value. And, and maybe there's something that you can take away that will, will help. And that's, I think our intent. I, I can't wait to get into a lot of those issues. We, we should have some plenty of news to discuss and, and to kind of get into it surrounding college football. But uh, and, until next week, that's Bronco Mendenhall. I'm Brian Fisher. This has been Head Coach Use presented by Collegiate Sports Connect. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, everybody.